take our text tonight from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, looking at the 24th chapter, beginning at the 36th verse. It's Matthew 24, reading verses 36 through 42. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came, and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the meal, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. This is likely the most familiar or the most commonly referenced or quoted scripture in the Gospels from Jesus that are referred to in terms of end-time events, in terms of the Lord's second coming, perhaps in fact in all of the Gospels. And of course, as we look at this particular chapter, some, or we consider or study it, it's always of value to know who Matthew's audience was and who he was and where he had come from, a little bit about his background. We're, of course, reading these words approximately 2,000 years after they were written. Matthew probably wrote this around 50 or 60 A.D. But Matthew, he was a tax collector. The Bible refers to him as a publican. And many have pointed out that because he kept books, he was a good one to accurately write down the words of Jesus. He was likely of the tribe of Judah. That might ring a bell. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and it's thought that he was the only disciple from this tribe. According to Luke and Mark, Matthew was also called Levi. It was another name that he was given. In fact, Luke puts it this way in Luke 5.27. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican. And that word literally means a collector, uh, collector of public revenue. Named Levi, sitting at the receipt of custom. So this probably would have been like a toll road. And he said unto him, follow me. Jesus gave him two words, and in fact, Levi, or Matthew here, had a very quick response, the Bible says, the very next verse, and he left all, rose up, and followed him. That was it, two words, and the Bible says he left all and followed the Lord. And of course, this is an outstanding example to you and me when the Lord calls us, that we are to quickly answer the call of the Lord and go into action as the Lord would have us to. Well, Luke actually writes that right after this time, Levi, or Matthew, calls a feast to his house. And the Bible, in, in Luke's account, says that there were many publicans there. 
So many of his colleagues, many tax collectors, they were there and they were known for not being liked by the people because often they would add a percentage that wasn't fair to whatever they were collecting. But it was as if Levi or Matthew was here to say, look who I am now following. Look who I am now going to follow after. Look what I have left. And he wanted to immediately point others to Jesus. The one who had changed his life. The one who had make, made such a difference. And so Matthew was Jewish. And his background being Jewish, many have pointed out that his particular gospel was primarily written to the Jews. Mark, he primarily wrote to the Romans, perhaps. Luke, he was the only uh, Gentile writer in the New Testament, and so many have pointed out that he primarily was writing to the Greek, and perhaps John was writing to the church or the New Testament church. Mark focuses on what Jesus did. Luke focuses on what Jesus felt. Like when you go to a doctor, Luke was a doctor, the doctor asks you, how do you feel? Well, that's how Luke takes his account when he looks at Jesus and who he was. Matthew focuses on what Jesus said. And so it could be important to consider that when we look at the 24th chapter, that he was writing to a Jewish audience. In fact, we can see who was with uh, the Lord when Jesus said these very words. As Jesus exits the temple at the beginning of Matthew 24, the Bible says that at that time the disciples came to him. In fact, it says, for to show him the buildings of the temple. So Jesus had been in the temple, and the disciples came to him and wanted to show Jesus, look how impressive this is. Maybe it was the architecture. Maybe it was the size of the stones, the structure, the grandeur. In fact, I read that several of the stones were perhaps perhaps 70 feet long, 10 feet wide, and 8 feet high. In my mind, I always pictured smaller stones, but apparently some were quite large. The disciples were impressed. Look at this. In chapter 24, again, verse 2, it says, And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that, that shall not be thrown down. The Lord was prophesying of something that was coming soon relative to where we are today. 38 years later, in the year 78 AD, the Romans literally burnt the temple and every single stone was taken down. In verse 3, we then find what often is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. I understand the, the Mount of Olives from the temple is maybe a 25-minute walk. And this particular place has a beautiful view of the temple itself and of Jerusalem as a whole. Today, it's outside the old city. And apparently, the Lord took some of the disciples here and began to speak with them about the end. In fact, Mark, in his account, he puts it this way, Mark 13, 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter James, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. So this is much different than the Sermon on the, on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was a large group. Here, the scripture says that it was a private discussion. Of course, we know that there were the three known as Jesus' inner circle. And then we have Andrew, who was the brother of Peter. 
In Matthew's account, it simply says the disciples came unto him privately. And what do they do at this time? They ask him three distinct questions. When shall these things be? They wondered. Number two, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And number three, and of the end of the world. And Jesus, he begins to answer them in a very broad sense in verse four. And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed. He's saying unto them, beware or be careful that no man deceive or seduce or to wander or to be, be led astray. He's saying, don't let an individual, a man, a person deceive you. Deception comes from people. It comes from individuals. It comes from organizations. It comes from movements who are deceived by Satan. False teachers, false prophets, false preachers, false instructions, those who do not literally interpret the word of God as a whole. Way back at the beginning, what did Satan do to Eve? He questioned God's word. He said to, to Eve, hath God said? Is God's word really true? Does God say what he means? Did God really mean what he says? In fact, the Apostle Paul, he put it this way when he wrote to the church at Corinth, speaking of being deceived, for 2 Corinthians 11, 3. You see, the church at Corinth was living in a very prosperous day. It was a prosperous city. Things were going well. There was lots of material good. In 2 Corinthians eleven three, he says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled, or to seduce holy is another way of putting it, or to deceive, Eve through subtility, craftiness or trickery, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What is the simplicity in Christ? That is, Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. Christ came to save us from our sins. Christ came to deliver us from our sins. Christ came to make a church that is a bride, a church without spot or wrinkle. That's the simplicity of Christ. It's not complicated. The blood of Jesus does a perfect job. In fact, in writing to the church of Ephesus, he says that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. Anything else is not the glorious church. We, want to, we don't want to be deceived into something else, something that excuses sin, something that excuses unrighteousness, some way that excuses lawlessness for a something else. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. Remember how he said that he was concerned that they would be deceived as Eve was deceived. He said, should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Well, he goes on to say in verse 4, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if he receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with them. He was worried about them, that they might adhere or find or listen something else that maybe sounded good, and that they might go after it. It was a warning, a warning to all believers. And Jesus here was warning 
these four disciples on the Mount of Olives, and it's so relevant to you and me tonight. In verse 4, he says, Matthew 24, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And then Jesus goes on to list these signs, or this group of signs, false Christs, wars, famines, and pestilences. False Christ could refer to false prophets, false religions, false gospels that aren't the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wars, it's been well documented, the increase of wars. Famines, and in fact, these clusters of signs are all mentioned in Luke's gospel, chapter 21. According to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, in 2016, about 1,815 million people are undernourished. Almost a billion people. Nearly three times as many as live in the United States. He said famines would be a sign. He says pestilences, also found in Luke 21. Look at recent history over the last 100 years. In 1918, there was the great flu pandemic, 50 million deaths worldwide, 675,000 in the U.S. 1952, polio, 1984, HIV, 2003, SARS, 2009, H1N1, 2012, measles, 2014, Ebola, 2016, Zika virus, 2020, of course, COVID-19. But what we might notice here is that they're getting closer together. They're more often. He says earthquakes. It's been well documented about the increase in earthquakes over the last couple hundred years. It's very interesting that all of these signs are also mentioned in Revelation chapter 6. In fact, Jesus says here in Matthew 24, 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. And the original literally means the pains of travail. Jesus is likening it unto birth pains. Contractions, they get closer and closer together. And as they get closer and closer together, they strengthen each time as well. And Jesus is saying that when you see these things begin to happen, that means things are ramping up. And what we learned when we had our three children is that once the baby's going to come, the baby's going to come. And that's what Jesus is saying here. When you see the beginning of sorrows, when you look around the world and you see these signs, that it is the time of the end, the beginning of the end. In verse 9, it says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And no doubt the apostles, speaking to them, they did die for Christ. We only believe that it was perhaps the apostle John that was not martyred. But today, according to a study of global Christianity in Massachusetts, it's estimated that 100,000 Christians are killed annually for their faith. Try and let that sink in. 100,000 people annually, Christians. In verse 10, it says, and then shall many be offended, which means to trip up, entice to sin or to stumble, and shall betray, to surrender or to tell or to deliver up. That's happening in godless societies where you are turned in for being a Christian where you are told on 
for gathering, where you were turned in for serving Christ. It's called the underground church. Societies like China and Iran and many others, and somehow it doesn't seem to be too far-fetched for here as well. So he says, and shall betray one another and shall hate, which means to detest or to persecute one another. And in verse 12 of Matthew 24, he says, and because iniquity, which literally, excuse me, literally means illegality or lawlessness, shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You see what Jesus is saying here? Almost overnight, we see here in this country, many embracing lawlessness as being okay. Jesus predicted it. Where all of a sudden, right is wrong and wrong is right. Jesus predicted it. Did you know that when Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, in regards to the works of the Antichrist, he uses the same word here in terms of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity, that's the same word, illegality or lawlessness, the works of the Antichrist, doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That's speaking of the Spirit of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. That's holding back the full extent of the lawlessness that is coming. No doubt we are on our way very quickly to where the church would be removed. To where the bride of Christ would be removed. So that the lawlessness can be rampant beyond what we can imagine. He says, the love of many shall wax cold. This is again in verse 12. That's agape love. The highest form of love. Love, the love that only comes from God. God defines love. The true love of Christ. It says that the love of many shall wax cold. And then in verses 15 through 28 of Matthew 24, Jesus begins to talk about what is called the abomination of desolation. He references the prophet Daniel. And we have to remember that Jesus was speaking to four Jews and he knew that ultimately the Jewish nation would reject him. And he's explaining them that during the tribulation period, halfway through, an abomination of desolation will be set up, and that would be assigned to them in their day. And it presupposes that a temple is, is built. And if I understand correctly, it would take them only 90 days or so to build the temple once they're given the go-ahead. They have all the instruments, they have all the things necessary, and they could quickly and concisely build the temple. Sadly, only about 10% or so of the Hebrew people are messianic. And once this abomination is set up, Jesus says it's a sign to the Jewish people to get out of Jerusalem, which is another discussion for another time. And during the second half of the tribulation, it will be the worst yet on earth, the scripture here says. In Matthew 24, 21, it says, for then shall be great tribulation. This is the second half of the tribulation after the abomination, the sign that's set up in the temple, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. In fact, the Lord even gives those that are listening, and as we read here, an idea of how bad it will be. Zechariah writes in the 13th chapter, verse 8, that two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed. He writes Jesus in Matthew 24, 22, and except those days should be shortened, there shall no flesh be saved, but for the elects, for the Jewish remnant, sake, 
those days shall be shortened. And Zechariah talks about it further, speaking of the Jewish people during the tribulation, and I will bring the third part through the fire, and will find them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them, and I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. Matthew 24, again, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What a sight that will be. We want to be with the Lord. We want to be with Christ. We want to be with him as he comes back. Now to our text, Jesus is talking about our day. He's talking about the gathering together of the saints of God. He's talking about the rapture of the church. This is what's most relevant to you and me in verse 24, excuse me, in verse 36 of chapter 24. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. How were the days of Noah? No doubt Noah was mocked. He was made fun of. They said he was insane. They said he was crazy. They probably said he was closed-minded. They had never seen a ship like this. They had never seen such a vessel, and they probably just could not wrap their head around or comprehend what they were doing. But if we look at Genesis 6, 5, in terms of wickedness and lawlessness, it says, and, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look at the path the world took and why God brought judgment. You know, throughout history, when mankind, when cultures... When they take a path of saying that homosexuality is okay, throughout history they're done for, biblically speaking. It happened at Noah's day. It happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. You look at the Greek empire. You look at the Roman empire. Every empire that goes that path, they don't last in their glory and their splendor. Societies that take that path, they don't make it. It says in verse 38 of Matthew 24, for as in the days they were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and, and many would like to point to this, that it was business as usual. People were being married. They were uh, getting together. They were eating and they were drinking. Some have drawn that where it says giving in marriage, not only marriage, but giving in marriage. Maybe this was unholy unions or unions that, that were not ordained by God. It could be. But the point is that the signs are all around us. The evidence is all around us. At any time now, any moment, we don't know the day or the hour, the Lord is coming back. And in fact, in verses 40 through 41, we talked about how it says two will be in a field, or we read about it. One shall be taken and the other left. In fact, two will be grinding at the mill. One shall be taken and the other left. Jesus says, watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. And then he goes on to talk about like a thief in the night. So he's talking about in the morning, 
sometime midday or at night, a teaching to us of the global nature of the rapture. It will be morning somewhere. It will be night somewhere. It will be midday somewhere, but it will happen. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. What are you watching tonight? Jesus commands us to watch, to look up, to be prepared. Watching is, is this uh, an activeness, I think, on our part that we see the signs, we're, we're aware of the signs. The point of the signs is to tell us and to show us that Christ is coming back. What are we watching? Are we watching politics more than the soon coming of Christ? Are we watching the news more than we're watching the signs of the soon coming of Christ? Are we watching everything around us and worried about everything around us more than watching for the soon coming of Christ? We want to be watching for Jesus. We want to be watching and listening for that trumpet, that shout that will go before the trumpet. We want to be not only watching, but we want to be ready. We can know all this, but are we ready? We can be aware of all this, but are we ready? What a hope we have, and what a day that will be, like we heard sung tonight. What a hope. The signs are all around us. There's nothing left undone that could hinder the Lord from coming back. In fact, the scripture is very clear. It could be at any moment, in any time, the imminent return of Christ. And let's do this tonight, and that is to make sure we're watching. Regardless if we were saved just recently or many years ago, the Lord would have us to look into our hearts, to examine our hearts, to make sure our testimony is up to date. He's not looking for excuses. We have many reasons that the enemy would give us. We can't gather. We can't pray together like we used to. The Lord hasn't changed. The Lord is the same. The Lord wants to search our heart. He wants to search your heart at home, wherever you may be, whether you be driving or, or whatever the case may be. The Lord wants you to search your heart and make sure that you're watching. I want to make sure that I'm watching. We want to make it. We want to be ready. We're going to have an opportunity to pray. We encourage you, seek the Lord. Draw nigh to him. He'll draw nigh to you. The song is 482.